Now, we're going to do something different today. You pray for the technology. I went kicking and screaming into the computer age. And now I have an iPad. And so the mother superior thought it would be a good idea if we try to put some of these things up there. So let's pray, and then we're going to do a review of the book of Hebrews because that's what the writer told us to do. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that today I might be spirit-filled, that you might communicate through me what you want us to hear. And then, Lord, I pray that we would not be forgetful hearers, but we would be obedient to your word. And, Lord, I pray for those who are here, maybe like those Hebrews that the writer wrote to, that are just on the edge in fear or, or something else holding them back, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would bear with this exhortation all so that we would hold on to it because if we're not in a trial, there's one coming. Lord, give us the strength, the grace to fix our eyes on Jesus that we might be found faithful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 13, 22 says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. I like this. For I have written to you briefly. Now, that's why I think it's probably Paul, but, you know, another, another reason, because uh, I don't think this is brief. Jude is brief. But he wants us to bear with it. John MacArthur said, Hebrews is a great treatise preached with a pen. It is an urgent call to the readers to come to a single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and to complete satisfaction with the new covenant. He encourages the readers to bear with what he was written, to receive with receptive minds and warm hearts what he has said. Contrast that to 2 Timothy 4.3 where Paul describes using the same verb, and it says they do not endure or they do not bear with strong doctrine. Now, many times people come to our church and they hear the word and they go, I'm not coming back there. I remember we first built our building and people had seen it gone up and they saw these big beams and they thought, oh, we want to visit there. And they came in and a number of them went, oh, it's you guys. And they were gone again, right? The word has that effect. It separates, doesn't it? And so it's our goal, it's all of our elders, our Sunday school teachers, to as simply and clearly as possible just say, here's what God says. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to understand. I want you to get a hold of these principles. And remember, as we went through there, there were five warnings. Second chapter, verses one through four, he says, don't drift from the word. That's just neglect. We begin to take God's blessings for granted, and we don't continue to feed at the word. We just neglect it, and we begin to drift away. Chapter 3 through chapter 4, don't doubt the word. That's a hard heart. It's a blessing to me to watch. We had some uh, students come into our seminary uh, from a different background, different church background, and they were truly born again, but they were really kind of, I think, brought up on good feelings and vibes or something. I don't know. 
but to watch as Clayton and the other teachers poured the word of God and then changed the total trajectory of their life. That's what the word does. When we take God's word in our heart and we don't reject it because our heart is hard, we don't, we're not rebellious against it, we let it do its work in our life so that, like James says, we become full and entire, lacking nothing. And then there's just dullness toward the word in chapter five and six. That's just sluggishness, just being lazy. Like people that are yabbit Christians, my dad called them. Well, he didn't call them that, he called us that because we would, he'd give us instruction as a dad and we'd say, yeah, but it's not enough just to hear the word, but also to be what? Obedient to the word, not sluggish. And then there's despising the word and that, that powerful, powerful passage in chapter 10 where he said, if you hear the word and you reject it, it's like trotting underfoot the blood of Christ. And when we as parents or Christians that others are watching don't exalt the Lord in our obedience to the word of God, then other people get the idea, well, it's not that big a deal. And they trot underfoot the blood of Christ and the warning here is there remains no other sacrifice for sin. How many people call our church and say, listen, we raised our son in our Baptist church and he doesn't care anything about the Lord, but would you go call on him? So you had 18 or 20 years to demonstrate Christ. Of course we'll go call on him, but what do you think we have? What's gone on? Half-baked Christians are sometimes harder to crawl over many times than those that don't even know the Lord. Willfulness, just despising the word. There remains no other sacrifice for sin but a fearful looking to of judgment. And then last, defying the word, chapter 12, just refusing to hear. You see, some of these people, they've grown up with their traditions, and like probably most of our church, when we look at the people who have come to Christ over the years, most of our people come from a liturgical background. That's where you go to the church, and the pastor, the priest kind of does it for you, and they have certain things to go through, and people like that, because it doesn't require anything but to sit there. In fact, when I first came to church, began to teach, we came to Ephesians, um, and chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and the instruction there is that the pastors, the gifted teachers, are to teach the congregation so the congregation will do the work of the ministry. And I remember Rocky Ownby, he said, wow, I never heard that before. I just figured we hired it done. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, that's for somebody else. They just refuse to hear. And it says here, we defy the word when we do that. Some of these people had grown up with their Jewish traditions and all of the things that went along with the ceremonies and they wouldn't even hear. They would not even look. They wouldn't consider. Those are warnings. Now in chapter one, verses one through three, those verses are the whole of everything he wants to communicate and everything that comes out of there is explaining the first three verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. 
Remember how John, for John, the gospel of John starts out? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was. Same thing, right? And the, all the rest of the gospel of John flows out of that, that beginning chapter so that we get understanding. You have to make a decision. This is who the author says Jesus is. He's God, very God. He's creator. He's king. He's the savior. And all of it flows out of there. And these last days has spoken to us in his sin, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Jesus spoke the world into existence. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You ever wonder why atoms don't just fly apart and we just go into nuclear fission? Because Jesus holds them together by the word of his power. One day he's going to take his hand off. And Peter said there's going to be a loud noise. You've heard people talk about the Big Bang Theory. Well, I believe in that. It just comes at the end, not the beginning. This is going to melt away with a great noise and a fervent heat because Jesus is going to say, okay, we're done now. And then he's going to make everything new. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the incomparable son of God. Without an equal in quality or extent, matchless. Without equal, beyond compare, unparalleled, matchless, peerless, unmatched. Beyond comparison, unable to be compared with. He is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody. And he spends the rest of this book just defining that he is better than anything you can talk about. So you get to the end, you would hope, just like you do. Second Corinthians 5, you have friends that you love, and, and you say, God, just, just use me, beg through me that they might be reconciled to God. So chapters 1, beginning of verse 4 through chapter 2, he is better than angels. See, he created angels, and as powerful as angels are, we talked about that, how powerful, how fast they are. And they are servants, ministers of fire, ministering to us. Doug Bookman talked about the fact that some of you live lives that you came to Christ, but every once in a while your garden angel had to sit down and take a breather, right? You worked them hard. Ministers of salvation. Chapter 3. They're better than Moses. And the key verse there, three, it says, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just as so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Chapter four, he's a better high priest. And we talked about the fact that those high priests had this really important job, but they couldn't be bothered with the little people. That was not their job. But the Bible says we don't have a high priest like that. For we have not an high priest which, can be which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He cares. That's what makes him such an amazing, awesome God. That's why he asks you to bring every little thing. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. Because you have a God that cares. And because he has opened the veil for you in his blood, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help 
in time of need. Chapters 5 through 7, a better priesthood. You see, he wasn't born into the tribe of Levi, so he wouldn't technically, as a Jew, be available or it wouldn't be legal for him to be a priest. But the Bible says there he's designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, this hope we have in his anchor of the soul, a hope both steadfast and sure and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7, verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. There's no change. We read in the last chapter, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always is there making intercession for us. Verse 25, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 8. Jesus has a better ministry, a better covenant, and better promises. Verse 6 says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the meteor of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Verse 9 says that it's from the inside out. Not like the old covenant. The old covenant was from the outside in, and so you had to make sure you practiced and told everybody his neighbors, uh, know the Lord, the rules. Everything was pointing to Christ, but they still had to come by faith. But this is a new covenant. He said, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be God to them, and they shall be my people. Aren't you glad you have the Holy Spirit today? I mean, things change as soon as you came to Christ. Maybe before you were thinking, well, or maybe you're in that condition today. You're thinking, well, I'm not sure if I can live up to being a Christian. I, I look at the, and you have somebody in your mind, probably you're thinking about, they're, they're, they're just a better person than me, and I could never do it. That's why Paul said, it's no longer I that live, that Christ that lives in me. That's the promise of the new covenant that he cleanses us and he comes and he dwells within us. And that's why he began to change everything, didn't he? He began to change everything. You know, maybe you gave up, you know, some external sins and then he began to work on your attitudes. And pretty soon you begin to think, I can't get away with anything. That's right, God loves you. He lives within you. Chapters 9 and 10 a better tabernacle, and a better sacrifice. Verse 24 of chapter 9 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, not just a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest. He did it once. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself forever. We read that in the, first, in the third verse. After he made purification of sins, he sat down 
The work of salvation is completed. There's nothing left for you to do to be saved but receive it. That's it. Nothing left. You don't have to, you know, say the prayer and then try to live up to it. That's kind of what we do in Baptist circles. We try to pressure people into a decision, and then we try to hang fruit on them. Make sure you go to church. Hey, please get your hair cut. Hey, start dressing this way. Start doing, hey, how come you didn't come to small group? Hey, you better come to church. You see, you're missing church. If you look at the book of 1 John and you see the marks of the believer, God changes everything. Yes, we have to grow. We have to make decisions. We, we've been given the ability to make those decisions, but he changes everything. He gives us new want-tos. He changes our desires so that 2 Corinthians 5 says, whether we're here, separated from heaven, or we're separated from this physical body and we're present with the Lord, we have this one purpose, this one desire, to be pleasing unto him. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit. That's what God puts in us. In chapter 10, verse 14, listen to this. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Here, listen to this. This is hard for us to think about because we live between our two ears, right? And we know us. But when the Father looks at you, he sees you dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So how can that be? Because our eternal Savior gave one sin for all time. What, when was your sin when he died on the cross? It was all future. You, you weren't even a twinkle in your father's eye yet. But God set his affection on you in eternity past. And just like that sacrifice perfected all the saints of the Old Testament, all those he would, would bring to himself, all those that would be saved, your sins are already taken care of. We confess our sins, right? That's the mark of the believer. Because now we know what sins are. And we have the spirit dwelling within us to point those things out, even our wrong attitudes. And what do we do? We agree with God. Yep, that's sin. Chapter 11, we have the faith chapter. Is that helping? Okay. Say no, and then I don't have to do it again. Nah, it doesn't happen. You know, I just, I like to give big handles on Scripture. So I hope you take this and you say, let's go through Romans in our small, small group, or let's go through Hebrews. And if you give people big handles so they understand, they remember what's in this chapter. They can just remember that part. Not, not to you, not the official one from Dr. Bookman, but you put your handle on it. And then that becomes a manual for you. Because the Bible says God desires for every believer to be able ministers of the new covenant, knowing how to handle the word. Like Paul wrote to Timothy, rightly dividing, be a workman. This study is to show himself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Our counseling classes are really just how to use the manual to apply the word of God to people's lives when they're hurting, to give them instruction. Now, here's the easy part. If they're a believer, they have the Holy Spirit. You point them to the word and say, now, get busy. Some people just need the answers. They haven't been instructed yet. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to spend a lot of time spinning your wheels. In the faith chapter, 
We have the biblical definition of faith, verse one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is faith? It's obedience to the word of God. Here is the substance right here. It's our substance. This is our promises. This is our instruction. But when you obey it, you're not going to know how it's going to turn out beforehand, do you? You obey the Lord. You're not guaranteed what the result's going to be. It's going to honor the Lord. Your faithfulness will honor the Lord, but you don't know what it's going to turn out to be in time. That's why it's called faith, obedience to the word. Secondly, the verse 2 says the purpose of faith. By men of old gained approval. How do you please God? Walk by faith. Verse 3, we have the understanding of faith. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How do we know Jesus created the world? Well, we have verse 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. We have John 1, and we have this. Chapter 11, verse 4. He spoke the worlds into existence. Then we have the necessity of faith, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Your legalism, your rules, your natural discipline doesn't please God. Mm -mm. It's faith. For we must, for he that, uh, for he that believes, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's a good God. That's different than the Jewish mind, who thought God's just waiting to punish, or maybe the way you grew up in your church. God's not a good God. He's a bad God who's just waiting to punish me all the time. That's not our God. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And then in verses 4 and 5 and 7 through 38, the rest of the chapter, we have examples to follow. So often in our minds, we think about Jesus and we have this little parenthesis. Oh, well, that's Jesus. Now listen, Jesus gave up the use of his deity that he might walk as we walk, that he might be our example. But more than that, for those that were saying, well, this is new. I mean, I grew up like this, whether you're Jewish or you grew up Roman Catholic or some kind of traditional Baptist church or Presbyterian, and you're holding on to your child baptism or, or, or any of those things that these Jewish people might be holding on to, their traditions. I said, well, this is new. I have this great list of all these people that got information. They didn't know how it was going to turn out, but they honored God by being faithful. They just obeyed. Abraham went out, followed God, and to a place he'd never seen before. And he was a guy that was established in his business. He had to leave it all behind. Everything he was familiar with. And all these people. And then we have that great crescendo. Verses 35 through 38. Women received, it says, verse 33, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lying, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And we think about those people in the past. The Bible says in Romans 15, 4, that these things were written for our encouragement that as we trust the Lord by faith, we will also be found obedient, that we can hear well done. And then the last two verses here are so important. That's the Acts 29. Have you ever read Acts 29? No, you haven't because it's still being written. 
And it's your life. It's your opportunity of faith. You say, well, I'm not as important as those guys. To the Lord, he has work for you to do that he has saved you for, he has gifted you for, and he has placed you right there to be faithful in your time and your place. Verse 39 and 40, all these gained approval through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So we come to chapter 12. What is it? It's decision time. You got to make a decision about this. I talk to people regularly. They say, oh, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You may have grown up in a good home with the fear of the Lord, but there comes a time you have to make a decision because you're born in sin. You have to make a decision. How do you do that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 16, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, seeing that you have all these examples in chapter 11 to faith, you need to lay aside every, sin, every, every weight and the sin that so easily entangles you and set your course to run with patience, fixing your eyes on Jesus. You're going to have to keep your eyes on Jesus because you're going to stumble, you're going to fail, trials are going to come. And it's going to, there's going to be a tendency for us to faint. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can finish. Then we have to, verse 7 through 17, we have to submit to the Father's discipline. Be nice if we got saved and everything was just good, right? Boom, I'm a, I'm a mature believer now. Sometimes we look at new believers when they're enthusiastic and we think, oh, isn't that great? I wish I could be like that. Well, you know what happens? Satan, he hates that enthusiasm. And he shoots at it. I think we should all always be growing in that enthusiasm, but sometimes he quenches it. There's some old bitter Christians that say, oh, well, they'll get over that. I hope not. But there's challenges to that, and that's the process. The Lord builds us by allowing us to go through trials, just like a football coach takes his guys to the gym. And he gives you some squats and some cleans, and he gives you some push, some some. Uh, bench press and some overhead press and and he works hard he says, ah, i just want to play football and he said what does this have to do lord this trial i'm going through with you know i love jesus why is this happening to me because the lord loves you he disciplines every son he receives and then verses 18 through 29 welcome to mount zion i love that passage you've not come to mount sinai where it's just a fear of God. You've come to the company of the saints of all ages. Welcome to the family. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which may be offered to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's our response? Chapter 13, to worship. How do we worship God? By obeying him. First John Chapter 5 says, if we love God, we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden. Not a burden. And we looked at that last week. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. 
And do not neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders, submit to them. For they keep watch over their souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. That's worship. Just like you submitted to the Father's discipline, you submit to Christian leaders. And then he gives that great benediction. I love this. I think we should say this every week. Now the God of peace who brought it from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever. And then the last verse, where do we get the power for that? He says, grace be to you all. What is grace? Grace is the power and the desire to do the will of God. That's what you got when you got saved. You got the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 2, 13 says, that's God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's grace. So when you see that at a beginning or the end of a book in the epistles, it's not like, oh, isn't that nice? That's a religious thing to say, grace. No, no, no. That's the power in us that works in us when we don't quench the Holy Spirit so that we can be found pleasing and one day we'll hear from Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby, and I put this up there, I think this is a great conclusion. How can I stand firm in a world that is shaking around me? The answer, know the superior person, Jesus Christ. Trust his superior priesthood and live by the superior principle of faith. Build your life on the things of heaven that will never shake. Be confident, Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. And the last verse from chapter two. If you're still in the throes of decision, get into the word. But the warning is how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So you look at this whole book that flows out of the first three verses. That's our king. That's our king. Do you know him? This morning, I, I don't do this very often, but I want you to watch just an excerpt from Shadrach, Meshach, Lockeridge. He's with the Lord now. But you watch it. I think it'll encourage your worship. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. David said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the fundament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's August. 
He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He star God and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. Yeah. That's my king. My king. Yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yes. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't him, teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. That's my king. Time, 
mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever, then amen. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. You've given us your only begotten Son. And even though the Jewish people as a nation rejected him, Lord, we know the promise that one day they're going to see him as the Messiah and they're going to return to him. Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you'd use this powerful Savior, use the Holy Spirit to draw others to yourself. Lord, help us to see us as your servants, as slaves of Christ, as the highest position that we can have, that we are not ashamed of our King. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us. Lord, I pray now as we gather around the table that you would convict us of sin, that we might come with clean hands, grant us repentance. And Lord, I pray that you might be blessed in our worship because we know we're nothing without you. Everything we have, everything we are is because of Jesus Christ. And around the table today, we remember you. Amen.